Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 18th of September 2023 and this is episode 315. On today's programme I talked to Dr Tony Garcia about the book he recently authored with Ian van der Waag on the roles played by South African Prime Minister General Louis Botha and his deputy General Jan Smuts during the Great War. This book is published by Helion. Anthony spoke to me over the interweb from his home in Edinburgh. Welcome, welcome, Tony. I wonder whether you could tell us about yourself and how you became to um, get involved with Bota, Smuts and the Great War and why write this book? Thanks so much, Tom, and, and good evening uh, to everyone. I hope it's, it's warm where you're at in Edinburgh. It's, it's lovely this evening, uh, which I don't get to say too often. And yeah, so, so I've uh, done a PhD in history and my topic was uh, General Porter. It was a it was a biography on General Louis Porter. And then from there, uh, one of the things, and I think uh, there was some work done between um, my friend and uh, my co-author, who unfortunately couldn't be with us just due to an unforeseen circumstance. Um, we started discussing the what options we had to do further work from that PhD, from his research, and then from mine. Um, and we decided to talk about Boerte, but to think about Boerte in the First World War is very difficult without Jan Smuts. And as a result, we put those two topics together. So it was really our, uh, you know, a lot of our passions in terms of military history, and then focused in my PhD, and then also uh, with Ian's substantive uh, military research, you know, around that time. So I wonder whether we could start with a bit of background information. Who was Jan Smuts and who was... Um... Mr. Bota. So it, it's um, I, I like the way that you you, you put that, uh, Tom. And uh, Mr. Bota became interesting. Uh, you know, just the phrase like that. And it's it's many of the British generals at the time refused to call the Boer generals as general, uh, just due to the different command systems. And uh, when after the Anglo-Boer War, uh, Jan Smuts wrote to his wife, and he was of course a, a Boer general, what we would call a general at the time, and he says. I'm I can't I'm not a general anymore. I'm just plain J.C. Smuts, and that he told to his wife Issy at the end of his uh, of the Anglo-Boer War. But of course, he was going to become a general again, as well as a general in the British Army. Uh, he was a man of humble beginnings uh, in the Western Cape in South Africa, but a man of tremendous intellectual ability. He went to Victoria College, which is Stellenbosch University, and then afterwards went to Cambridge, where he achieved massive honors. And he was a tremendous uh, student and, and academic studying law. He then came back to Rhodes government within the Cape, afterwards moving to Kruger in the Transvaal. So really a snapshot tour. Wherever he was, there was always some sort of older, wiser person guiding him. First, he sought that example and role model in Rhodes, then later in Kruger, and then, of course, afterwards in Boerta. Boerta, a different man to, to Smuts. Of also of humble beginnings, but he was a farmer, a person of the land. And where Smuts had this cold intellect, Boerter was, Louis Boerter was known for 
having a way with people. He was seen as magnanimous. He was seen as charming. And uh, he, he really had that practical type of intelligence and, and patience, that of a farmer. And some of his biographers before us speak about how a farmer could plant, take time to watch you know, the crops grow and harvest and so on. And really, this was Gautam. And he was known for, for his ability to suss people out. Smuts, when he was down and out after the Anglo-Boer War, finds a role model in Boat and really was Boat that gave this vision after you know 1902 uh, and the Peace of Vereniging and says right this united this united British and Boer system is where we need to go to in the future. I wonder whether we could just briefly touch on their careers during the Anglo-Boer War uh, from 1899 to 1902 and and why did they um, start or why did they uh, accept I suppose British rule and and cooperate it and co- cooperate with it from there. Thanks. Good question. Um, so at, at the time, uh, there was the old god, uh, Kruger, in, in, in the Transvaal. And what had happened was after the, the uh, Jameson raid uh, in 1895, uh, the writing was on the wall. There was, there was definitely an, uh, an imperious interest in a lot of the resources in Southern Africa. And uh, it came to a point where, uh, you know, war was declared between the Transvaal and, the, 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 and Britain. And uh, at that time, Boerter wasn't, uh, he, was a, he was a sort of a low-level politician in the lower house of parliament. And uh, Smuts was also an important official. Uh, and, but what happened over there was during the course of the war, as is often the case, they grew in prominence. Now, this is not something we deal, uh, a lot, deal with a lot in our book. It's maybe a prequel to come. It's, it's in my, certainly in my thesis, we, we, we talk about it a little bit more. But through this passage of the war, we see Boerter rising uh, to, to fame through his tactical ability, really, under uh, his role model and, and the commander, uh, Jobert. And as he, the old guard starts fading away, we see this young new wave of Boer commanders come forward, one of them being Louis Boerter, Coeurs de la Rey, C. De Vette. So all these people that became famous or infamous as guerrilla leaders come to the fore. And then Smuts really later on coming forward. Um, and he really was still the administrator, still running things from Pretoria, but became a very dashing uh, a Boer general, especially during the second phase of the Anglo-Boer War. The first phase referring to more when there were some tactical engagements started with a number of sieges. Some historians and scholars and people who are interested just generally feel that the Boers lost the initiative there in put you know sieging uh, laying siege to Ladysmith, etc., and not taking the ports. So um, and this was really the old school uh, thinking of Kruger from the eight uh, you know 1880 war uh, where that was limited and led to a result. This was a different type of war, and the British Empire made sure that it was known that they would not stop coming. Uh, this gave Boerter the opportunity, and he fights a, a couple of great battles as he as he rises through the ranks, as the older folks uh, fall away, and he, you know, the younger group of commanders come forward with their skills and ability, and wins a couple of tremendous victories on the Tugela line, and this really cements his 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 fame, and he's and then eventually he becomes the Commandant General, who's the most senior military figure. And historically, that has a link to the presidency. Um, and really, that's that that was his foundation. Jan Smuts, a very good general himself, doing a, a lot of guerrilla raids, um, invading the, the Cape. And, um, you know, in some ways, I think of him as this brilliant strategic mind. And sometimes he operated on this tactical level, you know, uh, 
Um, and of course, people will still be arguing about his exploits afterwards. So what do they both do between sort of the end of the Boer War from about 1902 up to 1914? Um, so from, from, from that time, it's um, the, the peace of, of Inukin comes in and essentially everyone, of, well, at least in the Boer leadership, is uh, a little bit demoralized and depressed. So the war is lost. And all of a sudden, uh, they're in a new reality. What Boete does is that he has a vision. He says, look, we can still pull this back. And and, and Kitchener, during the negotiations, tells me, when we have a change uh, in government in Britain, there's a chance for independence. Should the liberals take over, they eventually do in the, in the first decade of uh, the, the 1900s. And that leads to a change through a number of networks that start gathering support. And they launch what's called the Head Fault, which was their political party in 1904. And that has really the support, all the old, com- what we call commando networks, um, the idea of citizen soldiers in the Africana community. And also, I can say there were people of color also, but of course, there was a certain power relation from that at a different time. Um, and through that, put against massive support. And eventually, they go for independence of the Transvaal. And then in 1910, they managed to secure independence of South Africa as a union. So when I say independence, this was as a white uh, dominion within the British Empire, not the independence of 1994. Then in 1914, we have what's known as the Afrikaner Rebellion. Tell me about that. And what was uh, Smuts and Boater's view of this erection? Um, yeah, so this was this was a difficult time for them. Uh, it's often referred to as, as the experiment of bringing these two different worlds together. And, and in some ways, it was a clash of civilization. Uh, we had the free state, which was largely agrarian, and we had the Transvaal, but that was maybe a bit more mixed. There was the mining, some industrial sector, then also farming. And then the, the colonies, the former colonies of um, Natal and the Cape, which was uh, which had a larger British influence. Of course, I'm, I'm simplifying it, but that, that was the, the mix of the different areas. And Boerter's, um, what his great skill was to what one professor once called a political seduction, to get all these different people around the table and agree to a union to bind these different uh, uh, colonies together. So Transvaal, Free State, uh, Natal and the Cape, that became the union. And what Smuts did was ensure the intellectual element, the constitutional element, how to bind them together through a legal framework. And that was his great skill. He wasn't the man of the people, but he provided this uh, brain power to to, to put his charisma. And through doing that, they put it together. But in 1914, a large part of the Afrikaner population, and if we just think about it practically, 14 years before they were fighting, there were concentration camps. Some of Sumat's kids died in those concentration camps. Um, and many, many people did. Many people were, were, were still aggrieved. And they said, you know what? We're not serving under British commander, under the king. We're not serving under the empire. And this was the schism that was there. It was this, this, these different views, this idea of a united future put forward by Wood and Smuts. And some of these historical views of republicanism, Afrikaan independence, and they started romanticizing this idea. And these two clashed. And this led to the 1914 Afrikaner Merits Rebellion and really sent things into a spiral. Now, one of besides all those factors, the cultural elements that's beneath that, you know, different worldviews, um, uh, forms of, of different economies, different ideas of independence, of serving, besides all that, the trigger for that was the entry into 
the First World War. And Boerter was strongly for this just because he had given his word to the Union. But his counterparts were not happy with this decision. And one of the great debates was if Delaray would have would have uh, um, also been a part of the rebellion. And I think even though it's not definitive, most of the research shows that he most likely was not for Boerter at this time, even though they had a strong connection. Um, so we have some strong uh, um, Afrikaner figures that come out against the government, and that leads to rebellion, open rebellion, and battle. And Boerter says, makes himself commander in chief, and he takes to the field. So here we have, at this point, he's the prime minister, and he takes to the field with the unsmuts in Pretoria, running the intelligence, running the administration, with a nascent uh, um, Union Defense Force. And uh, all of a sudden, he's back to the Anglo-Boer War on his horse, this time maybe a car also makes it a little bit more comfortable for him, and using the trains. And through this uh, central position, deploys throughout South Africa and hits all the hotspots. So whether it's Kemp, um, whether it's Delaray, so his former comrade from the Free State, and through that engages with in, in combat a number of times, putting uh, down that rebellion throughout 1914. And towards the end of 1914, it starts to fizzle out. Um, so, so the the, Africa, uh, the rebellion largely is is crushed by the Union forces of South Africa. Now, this is pretty much at the same time that the First World War starts. So, let's focus on what both Smith, um, Bota, and uh, Smuts do during during the, the the Great War. I wonder whether is it possible really to take them one at a time, or do we need to look at them together? Um, I think a lot of, a, a lot of the book we we try to look at the the characters of, of um, the protagonists of Boerta and Smut. So we, we don't necessarily follow the traditional idea of, you know, this uh, military history or drum and trumpet, um, all the battles necessarily, but we try to look at where they were at a certain time. And uh, we, we look at some of the battles, some of the strategic pictures, and then also how the two corresponded, because that's often where we got some of the interesting discussions. Um, and, and as I'm sure many historians also on this call would know, when two people are together, you don't get, you know, there's nothing captured in writing often, maybe a diary afterwards. But if two good friends are apart, you'll find that correspondence. And this was some of the, the polls that we that we found and that we tried to bring out in the book. Maybe in the modern time, it's, it's also all kinds of social media, but that's a discussion maybe for digital histories. Um, but the first target or the first objective of uh, Boerta and Smuts was German Southwest Africa, which is modern day Namibia. And this was one of the, the objectives put forward. And the reason for that was that it facilitated um, the German war machine and their naval capacity. And so, and, and also there were certain communication systems that had to be taken out. And this, is, this, this was the reason put forward for the invasion of Southwest Africa. Starts off a little bit tricky with the Battle of Sanfontein, where the Germans win. They concentrate on that position. And, and, and give South Africa a bloody nose, or the Union a bloody nose. After that, methodically, there's, with a massive uh, um, disparity in, in, in numbers, South Africa, with, with, with a massive numerical superiority, manages to conquer uh, Southwest Africa in approximately six months. So by mid-1915, campaigns completed, desert clean, very well executed with Porter, leading it, and with, with uh, Smuts administrating from Pretoria, and while doing this campaign, they're very concerned about the elections of 1915 because the military actions don't necessarily translate into votes for them. And this is something that's very present, although after the, the victory, 
they are very inflated, you know, they're very inflated, very happy about it. However, the elections proved to, to, to say something new and we and they see a massive increase in votes for the National Party and for Herzog, who had earlier defected from, from uh, Burton Smuts's uh, uh, South African Party. So here we see the interplay of military and politics, and it's not exactly what you what one would think. Um, as an expansionist activity, you know, we f- you find it in the sources, in the archival sources, that despite claims that we don't want new territory, there, there certainly was uh, an objective of uh, territorial aggrandizement, and uh, this is this is kept in the in the back pocket and, and in the thoughts of Boerta and Smuts. And say, oh, you know what? They might be angry with us now, but wait till they come calling. We'll send some of the poor farmers out there. Of course, at the time, uh, a poor farmers was or, or poor whiteism in South Africa with a strong racial overlay was one of the issues for the Boerta and Smuts uh, government. Um, so really, after that campaign. Coming back to South Africa, they end the um, the the the, um, the campaign. It ends in victory, but then the electoral campaign doesn't uh, yield the same fruit or success. But however, continues to do his um, political work. He's as 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 the minister of agriculture as well as the prime minister at that time, and then after that, Smuts goes over. Uh, at the end of, of, of well, at the start of, of 1916 to German East Africa. So what did he get up to in German East Africa? Tell us about the military campaign that he headed up there. Sure. Um, so what's, I think what's, what, what's interesting about this is that uh, Smuts goes to, to East Africa and, and, you know, historians will debate about his interests and, you know, how competent he was, how, you know, was he the right person for the job? Did he perhaps need a, a chief of staff that was British that understood this polyglot force that was under his command? But essentially, there were a couple of, of, of main questions over there. And that was, um, how do we change the strategic balance? How do we, uh, uh, how do we change the, the situation over there? And how do we manage to secure um, a victory in a short time? One of, the, one of the big differences in the East African campaign was um the terrain and this was different to um this was different to to german southwest africa it wasn't a healthy terrain there was malaria and there were supply problems and you know smuts reputation bears the brunt for a lot of of the issues that came from that in terms of environmental health um but eventually what after try you know attempting to you know it makes a strong plea says you know this we are cut out for an african style of warfare south african style of warfare maneuver you know commanders on horseback try and envelop the enemy of course there's limited success at, at various battles but ultimately the terrain and uh letophobic is a strong and determined enemy and eventually despite this massive uh, disparity in forces once again, this massive military effort, it, it remains unconquered. But before that can end, uh, Smuts goes over to Britain in 1917 to the, and joins the British War Cabinet as well as the Imperial uh, War Cabinet, uh, Imperial Cabinet. So then he starts moving from this idea, of, you know, from the tactical, from the operational, from being a commander in the field, um, where he's certainly delivered good results, but there'll always be a little bit of a question mark 
around the fact that Leto Forbeck um, would never be captured and would, you know, eventually come back with the bayonets on his forces' rifles in place as they were never conquered. Um, and then, um, yeah, we explore that in a, in, in a chapter. And there's, a, there's an interesting discussion in the quote we is referred to as the modern Napoleon. And, you know, I won't, I won't go too, too far into that for now. You know, I'll let readers make up their own mind. Um, often it's, it's interesting that we want to compare Smuts as a military man and Louis Boerter as a military man. Um, and, you know, there might be some interesting thoughts or, or opinions of, of folks out there about who really was, who really was better, if, if we can say it like that. And even at the time, there was discussions, you know, um, coming from the Anglo Boer War, who was the best commander? Was it Porter? Was it Delray? Or, you know, or, or, or was it De Vett? Uh, and at that time, Smuts didn't feature in those, you know, afterwards, his name maybe gained, gained more prominence. But uh, certainly one for debate and, you know, one to be discussed in the pub. For, and, and certainly I've been engaged in some of those discussions. For me, I think tactically, Porter would always be the more interesting operational and tactical commander and uh, for smuts you know everyone can of course make up their own minds but in terms of uh, strategic thinking he was maybe better uh, when i when i say strategic i mean also on the political level tom i'm not sure what your thoughts are on that but i don't want to put you on the spot too i'm i have to confess i am not an expert on this area <laughs> I, I merely ask the questions i hope yeah, of course <laughs> but that but that brings me to an interesting point why does smuts go to london and why does he become a member of the british war cabinet what's in it for him and what's in it for britain so uh, it's it's um yeah he, he it's, it's it's an interesting question so i mean there are different sources that that indicate you know different different things you know in many ways he wanted to stay and finish the work in in east africa and in many ways, also, Boerter wasn't cut out for what he called the, the talk shops of, you know, of, of high politics. He was, after all, a practical person. And Smuts really became his assistant in so many ways. You know, Smuts was, in some ways, more, more British than, than, than anyone, you know, having studied in Cambridge and having these, in Cambridge and having these networks. Um, and, of course, he builds stronger links with Churchill during this time, which is, you know, which comes out again in the second World War. Um, Smuts, in some ways, is uh, is is you know uh, Winston Churchill refers him to the only unwounded statesman of outstanding ability in the empire at this time. And of course, he comes there and he's lauded for this this work in in German East Africa. Later on, we'll you know folks will debate. Well, did he actually do that? Did he do as much? Um, the one thing that's for sure is his his intellectual ability, and uh, he. And that's and he becomes in some ways the 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 the, the problem or the troubleshooter of, of Lloyd George. And he rubs shoulders with you know, Lloyd George, Walter Long, Edward Carson, and and, all, and many of the you know the, the leadership of this time. Um also during this time he becomes interesting in the sense that he puts together a bit of a, a paper that unites the different elements and forms the Royal Air Force, and then also does some tactical things around the defense. Of, of London. So he becomes interesting in many ways. Um, a lot of the work that he does over there is, is um, it really sets him up for a, a future, you know, of as, as really a rock star internationally in terms of politics and mili militarily. And he was just that kind of person with, 
so many different uh, abilities, you know, from botany to philosophy. And, um, you know, ultimately, before he died, he, he, you know, much later on, he would say, well, you know, I just belong to antiquity. And and he believed this, you know, he, he would always look at things through so many different lenses at the same time. And he brought this brain power to bear. Despite that, there is critique about his, you know, his ability to influence the the situation on the Western Front, who could eventually, you know, advise and, and find solutions to that almost impossible question of uh, trench warfare and, and the static lines of that time, where there was, you know, a strategic balance. And ultimately, he moves from there and 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 really is Buddhist confident and mouthpiece in London and with the British Empire all the way through to the peace talks. So that brings me on to what's Bota up to in South Africa while um, Smuts is campaigning and politics? So Bota's from uh, 1915, late 1915 onwards, goes through a bit of a tough time. Uh, He's always been a little bit um, heavy and had a number, you know, with that came a number of health problems, also the stresses just of constant fighting and politicking in parliament with his colleagues. And he, many people, you know, uh, would say, and writers, authors, and from the source, it comes up that he really was broken, a broken man after the the, the Afrikaner rebellion. Um, he was a sensitive person. And uh, in in Englenberg's biography, which which was one of the, the best and the first ones, um, in the foreword before the English edition, he says, Smuts writes about Boerta, who had passed at that point. He says, I don't, I, I, he has a tremendous heart and he's magnanimous. And I would never understand how some small insult would keep him up at night. And he was just this kind of person. He would stew on it and think about it and think about it. And he always wanted people to be happy, uh, you know, within reason. And and this was, was part of it. So there was a tremendous psychological pressure. Um, some folks afterwards think he was in a depression and he battled doing the, the business of state while, you know, trying to keep keep things together uh, with, within the Union of South Africa. Um, ultimately, there would be victories at times. You know, there would be, he w- it would be one thing after another. And in fact, you know, that's, um, that's eventually what we, uh, we, you know, one of the quotes that we have is, is, is we, he was referencing a newspaper or ref- and he said, it's just one damn thing after another. And it went from slander cases, but we, you know, where someone had, had uh, accused him of uh, ordering the, the killing of Afrikaners during the rebellion, which he took so personally. And, you know, he won some of these battles legally, which, which helped a little bit. But at the time that he went uh, for the peace talks and joined Smuts, he really was not the same man anymore. Um, and uh, he, he also missed Smuts a lot. He, they were, they, they, it was one of his confidants. And while Smuts was away, he found other friends and colleagues, such as Buxton, who eventually wrote a biography about him too. And uh, the, they, would, they would reconcile in, in, um, in France during the, the, or not reconcile, they would reconnect in, in, during the peace talks and really have a different opinion about the, the amount of pressure and, 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 and really the reparations and the way that um, the, the amount of pressure put on Germany at the time. Um, and due to their own experiences in, in South Africa after the Anglo-Boer War, they really were opposed to leaving, giving them a bad deal. 
that that would harbour or that would allow for feelings of resentment. And so, did what was their position on the sort of 1919 uh, sort of Treaty of Versailles? Did they did they come to or did did they again? So did they did they take the sort of the peace peace negotiations? Um, I suppose in a way to try and further South Africans' territorial situation, or did they really use it to position South Africa within the empire? Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely, uh, it, it's, it's a very good question. So despite the, you know, the reservations about uh, about Germany and, and the way it was being treated, at the, they were practical men and they were men of their time. And for them, the, the, you know, by, by the standards of the time, they certainly were racist, as we would see people today. And also, uh, they were not going to miss out on the opportunity to let uh, German Southwest Africa become a part of uh, uh, the Union of South Africa. And this was very much, as you say, a part of the negotiations. And Smuts was the master negotiator at that. And also, you know, the wordsmith and 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 working behind the scenes. It was difficult, though, because there was the idea of liberation at the time of, uh, of allowing self-determination and maybe a new concept to, to, to some. It certainly was uh, uh, something that Smuts dealt with and eventually... Uh, Namibia or German Southwest Africa, as it was at the time, was declared a Class C mandate, which means, well, excepting in name, it was a colony, and and so this was the result that was wanted, that that they wanted, Boerta and Smuts, and also uh, many other uh, South Africans. Also, I need to mention this was, you know, there was no um, person of color, black or indigenous community that had a voice at this time. Of course, everyone knows that, but just you know, as we as we now go through the culture wars uh, and and you know rewrite things and set things straight, you know it, there was no representation. It was uh, it was it was just the interests of them at the time. And in chapter one, uh, you know the one that we've we've put out uh, um, for for everyone that's here and on your website, Tom. We start off with a discussion about the culture wars and the statues, which was vandalized. Off. I don't know if you want me to go on about that a little bit. Or... Yeah. Yes. Please do that. That's so yeah, so it, it's so we start kind of at the beginning, you know, in the present uh, before we go back. And in chapter one, you know, we welcome feedback. It it speaks a little bit about our methodologies, why why we think we went through this process and why why biography combined, you know, with historical period. But also we look at the you know, in 2005, Louis Boerta's statue was vandalized. Then also from there there was a spate of vandals of Africa, Cape Town, Durban, Pretoria. And 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 we start with a with a quote at, at, at the beginning, if you download the link, you want to have no pressure at all. We start with two quotes. We say, um, one, one of the quotes is from Julius Willema, but of a sort of a, uh, the economic freedom fighters there, but kind of um, trying to find the correct wording over here, but they're a little bit extreme in some ways. But in this case, um, we start with a quote of him, but also a quote of Smut speaking about Boerta, and also Julius Malema speaking about Boerta, says, Boerta's memory is the shared heritage of all South Africa Smuts, you know, a very long time ago. And then more recently, Malema says, Boerta is not our hero and cannot be a heritocratic South Africa. So we start with this kind of discussion on the culture wars and uh, how, you know, how they were remembered and how they made sure, so Smuts made sure that Boerta was remembered even though the Nationalist Party took over at some point, he made sure that that memory was kept and that when he was in power, statues were put up. Interestingly, Churchill made sure that Smuts's memory honored. So, you know, we go a bit about the cultural connection. Um, 
And of course, Smuts has a um, a statue in Westminster that we'll comment on. And with his hands behind his back, and he's looking distant with his deep philosophic thought, no doubt, he's ice skating. Um, so we go a bit into this, how um, these statues are there, and, and also in South Africa, how we have a statue of Buddha and one of the Zulu kings called Dinazulu, who was imprisoned um, with, with, with very dodgy evidence. And one of Goethe's first acts when he became the premier of the Transvaal was to release him. So in Durban, we now have these statues close together. And, you know, many people say it's it's as if there's this perpetual discussion, you know, these historical uh, figures. Of course, this is just creative license. We're adding a bit, bit to it. And uh, But it is interesting how these different um, old stat, uh, old uh, figures from are represented. Now, of course, South Africa is a particular case where it's still poverty, and many people will still take offense to it. We do acknowledge that um, in the book. Um, also, Cambridge has gotten rid of some of, of Smuts's, uh, I think it's a bus that was taken, double check that, and also in the University of Cape Town, South Africa, um, where so some of these portraits, busts, and so on, and certain names were renamed. So so the culture was definitely there where we have these figures that had a massive role in the First World War, how they definitely set out the agenda for South Africa or the 20th century, um, and also how this history is being interpreted, reinterpreted, and that's where we avoid discussion. I suppose the final, the final, my final question, what, what would be the legacy of these two individuals, partly for South Africa and partly for South Africa's conduct in the war? So this is uh, um, this is such a good question, and um, you know I, I almost want to to I always want to be I always want to cop out of the of answering, but uh, so we we try and take a balanced approach to it because of many of much of the effect of apartheid and that unequal landscape, which in some ways you know it's not directly from Boerta and Smuts, but it's very present, right? And a lot of that colonialism, etc., it's all part of that same discussion. So we, 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 we take a balanced view of it that to say that they were certainly important people and they need to be remembered as the first prime minister of, of South Africa. Of course, Smuts would later on also become prime minister twice. Um, they certainly are important people, but they have, like all of us, they have uh, points in, in both sides of the ledger, you know, credit and debit. And on and you know one of the things we call out in the introduction for those that pull it out and and, and read it, um, that's on your website. We say when they made mistakes, they were massive. They were monumental mistakes. Um, one of the things they kept out of the uh, the peace of the after the Anglo-Boer War was giving some sort of franchise to um, bl black Indian and people of color. Some qualified later. There was qualified franchise at some point in the Cape and in, in Natal. That's a you know a nuanced discussion. But they fought to keep it out because they wanted to uh, maintain that kind of racial policies that was very present uh, in the culture at the time. Um, so they made big mistakes, and eventually that thought, that those those thoughts, that those 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 institutional racist views were enshrined in the 1913, what was called the 1930 Native Land Act, and that essentially made sure that people of color in South Africa were disadvantaged all the way through for the, all of the 20th century, um, and and uh, you know until maybe independence in in 1994. Uh, about your question about remembering the, the war, so this is interesting and maybe one where I don't completely, well, no, I don't agree with the, the current government because it's it's treated in some ways with a, with a mild neglect. The military institutions in South Africa do honor, you know, they do the parades and so on and the, um, the local uh, uh, institutions 
um, do the correct or, or, or the necessary, you know, um, talks, the necessary meetings, the necessary um, activities and events. But nationally, there's more that can be done. And in some ways, it, uh, the ANC government neglects, and it's, it's you know, it's, it's a respectful critique over here. Um, they kind of, they don't do enough to acknowledge the service done by people of color in the first world, because there were many black, what we call in South Africa, mixed race, what we call colored uh, people. So that's, I know this word is not accepted outside of South Africa, but that's an official racial group in South Africa. Uh, and Indian uh, people made a tremendous effort in the First World War, and that needs to be acknowledged. And I think that's something we bring out in, in our work. We don't focus on it because we focused on these two characters, but we certainly tell these sub-narratives as a part of it and where they made those mistakes. Um, so, so yeah, they, they, their legacy will certainly be, all, will, will certainly always be tainted by that, at least in the modern moment. And we, we make a comment, we say, you know, until it's, until it's so far in the future that reading about the First World War is for us reading about the classics, that it's so far that we have it's, it's, it's not in any kind of loving memory and we read it just for that pure academic interest, then at that point it may change. But we, we see them as highly competent, brilliant uh, men who shaped the agenda for, for South Africa and achieved great things, but then also at the same point committed tremendous blunders. And my final question is, where can people get your book and when is it out? So uh, the, the book is published by um, Helen as part of the Wolverhampton Military History Series. Um, and it's available from that website, also th through your regular bookstores and on Amazon. Um, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say that, to be honest. I'm, you know, I don't know what's what's correct anymore. But, you know, so so through your normal vendors and um, yeah. Uh, thank you so much. And I'll, on that bombshell, I'll say, Tony, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.